Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick and this is episode number 183 of the Mandolins and Beer Podcast brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. It's also brought to you in part by Acoustic Disc. If you go to Acoustic Disc's website, just sign up for their mailing list and they will send you a free song every week from their incredible collection of music. You can also check out David Grisman's podcast, Acoustic Encounters, that he does with Dandy Barnes as well. So thank you to Acoustic Disc. Thank you to everyone who's listening. How's everybody doing? Hope you're doing good. We're getting ready to go into the Memorial Day weekend. Um, weather permitting, I'm going to be playing down in St. Augustine on Monday afternoon from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. be playing with my buddy Brad Edwardson, who lives down there. We'll be playing at the Colonial Oak Music Park, and it's a free show. It'll be great. Brad's an awesome player, awesome guitar player, awesome singer, great fingerstyle player. Loves the Doc Watson stuff. We'll be doing some Doc and Dog tunes and some other bluegrass and old-time favorites. I'm looking forward to that. I played a gig on Wednesday as well and made it through that, so that's good. And my results for my CT scan are all clear, so that's good news as well. So thank you all again for all the well wishes. I just got to ride this tonight as a vertigo as it uh, just kind of comes and goes a little bit less occasionally now, so that's a good thing. My guest this week is Will Kimball. The great luthier out of Ohio. Um, I've had the great opportunity to play a few of his mandolins now, and they just they just sound and play incredible. You know, the players who play them, guys like Mike Gugino and um, my buddy Josh Rilko just got one he loves, and Dylan McCarthy's got a great one, Phil from Town Mountain. So yeah, some great players playing some great Kimball mandolins, so it'll be great. So let's get into that episode, but first let's just hit the sponsors here real quick. Peghead Nation with Peghead Nation's streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. PegheadNation.com features an incredible lineup of mandolin instructors. Joe K. Walsh, Sharon Gilchrist, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fivish, Chad Manning, Ian Corey. From beginner to Brazilian choro music, they have got it all heck even if you don't play mandolin they've got all those other incredible instruments with just as many incredible instructors so sign up for peghead nation they got the high quality video lessons downloadable notation and tab play along tracks and plenty of tunes and songs to play the best part about joining peghead nation is you can get your first month for free just go to pegheadnation.com and use that promo code mandolin beer all one word at checkout Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Ear Trumpet Labs, hand-built microphones from Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed. They have great feedback rejection for live use and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. Pava Mandolins, Pava dedicated to building for the impassioned player right there in Austin, Texas. Also brought to you by Tone Slabs. Get yourself a slab of tone over at ToneSlabs.com. Frank Sullivan and David, his partner, are making some incredible picks. They're making them for some great players. They've got all the shapes that you would ever want, and they sound great. So head over to Tone Slabs and get yourself a slab of tone and elderly instruments. I'm going to be in Michigan next week, and while I had to cancel my gig, I'm hoping I can still get over to Elderly Instruments and check out some of their incredible 
mandolins. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted and stringed instruments. For the experienced beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I say mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. They're in their 50th year, going on to their 51st year pretty quick. They're family-owned and operated, ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime at elderly.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Will. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on the Instagram and the Facebooks. All right, we're going to kick this episode off with the song Crystal Ship by the Steep Canyon Rangers with Mike Gugino playing as Kimball Mandola. Everybody have themselves a safe and happy Memorial Day weekend. Cheers, everybody. Now, it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Will Kimball. Will, how you doing? I am doing great today. How are you, Daniel? Doing great. Doing great. It's really, I'm really excited to talk to you. I've played so many great Kimball mandolins, especially like in the last year. Just every one of them has been fantastic sounding and everyone who owns them has nothing but great things to say, not about just the mandolins, but about you as well. So it's really, it's really great to get to talk to you today. Well, good. That's good to hear. So I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Where are you located at? You're in Ohio? I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio. Oh, wow. Cool. Are you right in Cincinnati or are you on like an outskirt of? I'm in a suburb called Sharonville. So about 15 minutes north of town. You said you're working on a new batch of mandolins now doing some French polishing. Yeah, I'm French polishing a couple today. And I, uh, like I said, I got, I got off to a, to a little bit of a, a rocky start, but it's going pretty good. <laughs> and I was chuckling as I was doing it, thinking that people, people don't understand what French polish is, is like to do. And it, it's, it's not, French polish is not where you have this effortless perfection. And French, French polish is always changing. You know, it's too wet, it's too dry, it's too much oil, not enough oil, uh, it's getting smudgy, oh, it's good here for a minute, no, now it's too dry again. And and it's just a dance like that the whole time. And, and if you're not used to it, it can make you really uncomfortable. <laughs> but but once, you, once you've done a few hundred, you get, you get to where you don't have an expectation that you know, it's not like spraying on a coat of clear lacquer. I mean, it is it is a dance every inch of it, you know. Yeah, for those who aren't familiar like with the with the different finish types, um like the the lacquer versus French polish, maybe do you have like a quick sort of description to give people an idea when they're, you know, looking at their mandolin? Sure. So, I use what's called an an oil varnish with a French polish top coat. And um it's a little more complicated than that, but um, oil varnish, the, the, the oil varnish that I use is a linseed oil-based alkyd resin oil varnish, and I apply it with a brush and sand between coats. And then when I finish, I'm doing what's called a – it's more of a technique than it is an, an, a material. But French polish is a technique where you use shellac and you use a little pad and you sort of put on these micro layers of shellac by rubbing it and use a little bit of oil. People can use different kinds of oil. I use walnut oil. Um, but, um, that's what I do. You know, then, um, nitrocellulose lacquer is another common finish typically sprayed. Uh, and it, it's got sort of its own, its own, uh, journey where you spray a few coats and let it sit a week and then you sand it and spray it again and things like that. Um, but the, the over, the overriding story about finish is that the, the lacquer is a little bit of a harder finish. So even when it's 
thin, it still has a harder, clickier, scratchier, overtone kind of a sound. And then the, the varnishes, the oil varnish and spirit varnish, and French polish would technically be considered a spirit varnish, but the, the varnishes are a softer finish and they tend to mute the high end. So you can kind of use these hard woods uh, and get a really nice supported treble sound, but you can sort of calm it down with the, uh, with the oil varnish. Have you always done the, the, the varnish style that you use or have you changed over the years? You know, I, um, I know I did one that was all spirit, that was all shellac. Um, and it, it felt and sounded kind of how I expected more in a, a Gilchrist kind of a vein. Um, uh, and, uh, but no, I've always done the oil varnish. My, you know, when I first learned, my dad was using an oil varnish with a brush and that's how he taught me. And then Lynn was doing the same thing, but with a different material. And so I pretty much just copied what Lynn was doing. <laughs> and, uh, and he showed me how to French polish, you know, these are both things I got from him. And, um, and, you know, over the years, you know, this varnish becomes unavailable or this becomes unavailable and you have to switch what you're doing. And, you know, I'm probably not using the same materials that Lynn is using anymore. But, yeah, that's, that's you know, all, all but one mandolin I can think of are, are um, oil varnish with French polish. How did you get into this? You said your dad showed you how to do some of this technique. Your dad was a builder? Yeah, my dad had, had – my dad loved bluegrass and he loved Bill Monroe. And I was a guitar player as a kid and I was not real interested in bluegrass. <laughs> but, but as I got older – I kind of went from playing, you know, in the early twenties playing guitar and bands to in the, my middle twenties playing bass and bands. And then I sort of picked up the mandolin in my late twenties and I was playing really a lot. I was playing a mandolin my dad had built and, um, you know, I was real focused on the playing side. And then um, I ended up taking a job that, that, uh, my dad was living in North Carolina and I was up here in Ohio and I ended up taking a job down where he lived in North Carolina. And so I was down there and he had tools and wood and, and, you know, and I didn't have kids yet. I had lots of time and I just said, Hey, show me how to make one. And so he did. And man, that was, then that was all I thought about for about the next five years, you know, and Lynn, Lynn comes into the equation very quick after that. And my dad and I would go up and visit Lynn, you know, with our yellow legal pad and uh, just a sheet full of questions, you know, <laughs> And he was just, he couldn't have been more helpful to us. And it, it meant the world to us at the time. It still does, you know. We should mention that's Lynn Dudenbostel for anyone who, who might not be familiar with that. Just one of the, uh, just one of the great all-time builders as well. Yes, absolutely. And so he was about an hour and a half. He lived about an hour and a half from us. So we would, you know, we would build a new mandolin and then we would schedule with him and we'd drive over the mountain and show him what we had worked on and you know, and he, he always, he, he never gave us too much direction at one time. He always knew just the right amount. And, you know, he would say, this is what's good. And this is what you could work on next time. And we'd come back and show him what we'd got better. And so there was just a really rapid growth and exchange of ideas for the first year or two, you know. How long did it take you to build that very first one with your dad when you, you know, from start to finish? <sighs> you know, I don't know. The t time of building is, is not something I have a good handle on. Um, you know, it probably took a couple months and, um, and I had no, no idea that I could ever do it for a living. That was not my intention at all. Um, I was just trying to build something that I wanted to play and I, I had no aspiration for that. And, um, you know, a couple mandolins in, you know, Lynn was telling me 
well, you know, if you get this detail right and this detail right, it'll really help you, you know, charge a little more money and get access to the people who are really discerning buyers. And I was like, Lynn, I don't care about selling these things. He's like, you will. <laughs> you will. You're going to. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. How, how long was it until you sold your first one then after you started this process? Well, I, so the first one I built was in 2000. And then uh, probably by the next year, I probably had some orders. Oh, get out of here. Wow. Right. And so and then I quit my day job and went full time in 2003. And probably by 2004 or five, I probably I think I had to close my list because I had 40 back orders or something crazy like that. Get out of here. That's amazing. Yeah, it really you know, it was it was um, the timing of things was really great. I don't think I could do that kind of stuff now. Um but at the time, it was the time when, you know, Gilchrist was still selling a new mandolin for 8500 and it was selling used for, you know, 25000 You know what I mean? Or whatever it was. And people were, were ordering them like crazy. But it was really – there was only a few guys, man, you know. And, and um, a lot of us came in to fill in the gaps between, you know, um, the inexpensive stuff and the top guys. And it was just a, it was just the the water really rose everybody at the same time, and um, so I was really lucky. I, the timing of things was was good. You know, I got to know Mike Compton around that time in Butch Baldessari, and that was another thing I would do is I would drive over to Nashville and visit both of those guys and say, you know, here's what I've been building, and and they would set me straight. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get to know Lynn? Did your dad know Lynn from, from, from building? You know, I just reached out to Lynn by email and said, hey, I'm in Franklin. I'm working with my dad. And uh, you know what I actually asked him about was tone bars. And he, he, he uh, I said, I'd love to help you. And he put in a mail, uh, a tracing of an A in the proper location of the tone bars with some notes about the size and shape of the tone bars. And I still have that, you know piece of it's a piece of wax paper that he traced all that on and i still have that you know in my file over here and and um you know he did another one for me with the f style shape and and those just little nuggets of information gave me confidence to take the next step you know so so it just i just reached out by email and he was just gracious and then then i came to visit him and we we became more friends and he he and my dad got along real good and and we just it was just a good friendship you know yeah, he's a great, great guy. It, it's great to hear that he was he's as cool as he was. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he's one of those guys, you know, none of us make that many mandolins. And I, I you know, I remember him kind of saying to me, you know, I could tell you were going to do it. There was no reason for me not to help you, you know. Um, and I, I think that's a really cool way to think about it. And um, especially, you know, if you're a builder – yeah, there's a lot of people who want to chat about, oh, I'm thinking about building and I'm thinking about this and, and you know, that's fine. But I usually tell them, you know, build something and then come talk to me and we'll have a lot to talk about, you know, but that, but that's like the barrier. Like to me, like, like, like that's the price of entry. It's like, okay, go, fight it out, struggle, build one, then we'll talk, you know? And so, so we were there with some pretty good stuff, you know, and he, so he knew, he knew that he could give us a little bit of information and we would go and run with it, you know, so. Was your first one an A, a style or an F style? Yeah, I made maybe 
I would say 10 or 12 or 15 A's before I made F. Oh, wow. And I was just, I, I had a, the idea that I, I wanted to um, get some control over the sound before I spent the extra time to make the F. You know, people are drawn to this for different reasons. And my dad was drawn to it because he thought the F style mandolin looked so gorgeous. I was drawn to it because of the music and the sound. And so I didn't care if it was an A or, or an F or a two, you know, now I have the two points. I, I didn't care about any of that. I just wanted them to sound and feel a certain way. And um, I wanted them to sound and feel like these old Fs, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but, but it didn't have to be an F. And so, so, you know, I, I just figured, well, I could make t- twice as many and learn twice as much. And my first 10 or 15 mandolins, radical experimentation. And a couple of those never survived, you know. Um, crazy thing is I made a mandola that had a it had a one-piece neck block and tail block with a rod going through the center of the instrument, you know. Um, you know, there's one that I made early on where I built a body and I had and – I, and I got a neck from Rigel and I put the Rigel neck on my body. Um, I mean, so radical experimentation with woods and with um, – uh, you know, this is when I was messing, you know, well, I'll try a Sitka one and I'll try Engelman and I'll try, you know, um, Big Leaf and I'll try, uh, you know, all these different woods. And I was, you know, I t- tried European wood. And so a, a lot of, a lot of stuff going on there. Um, but it sort of let me, it sort of let me weed through a lot of things quickly and say, okay, well, I don't need to mess with that anymore. I don't need to mess with that anymore. <laughs> you know, and that was that was really, you know, I always tell people, you, you think you think maybe when you experiment that you only learn about this one thing, but sometimes what you learn is that okay, uh, th- what I learned is that everything to the left of this point I can ignore. You know what I mean? And then, and then you could do your next experiment and you can say, okay, everything to the right of this point I can ignore. And now you're left with a manageable area in the middle to operate, you know? Um, so, but you have to free up that time to experiment. Uh, um, I think to, to get some control over these variables or even decide what, what are my variables and what am I not going to allow to be a variable? There's a great quote. In, you did an interview with Fretboard Journal, which is one of my favorite publications. And there's a, a great, in, great quote in here where you would, you know, you have all these ideas like you're just talking about. And you go to Lynn and Lynn says, what is it about lore mandolins that you don't like and feel you need to change? <laughs> which, is, which was a great quote. <laughs> so that, that, you know, that has been a really useful guiding principle. And I will tell you, 25 years in, 23 years in, there's only a couple things I do. I do not like the 29 fret fingerboard. Don't need it. Okay. Don't need a 29 fret fingerboard. And the other thing I have grown to dislike that I've gotten more confident changing is the, uh, the headstock. Um, there are some technical things with the headstock that you, it's hard to understand until you build one, but you know, uh, and, uh, to go over it very quickly, the way, you, the way you bind a headstock overlay, your binding is going to be square to the ebony or whatever you use for that top piece. But the, the tip of the F-style headstock is tapered. You know, it has a, like a point to it that's at a different angle. So, so it's not square to the binding. So no matter what you do, you got just kind of a finicky bit there, a fiddly bit that you got to kind of like blend that wood into the, to the, into the binding. And when you look at the old lore mandolins, that binding on the headstock is typically very, very thin. You know, 
So I don't think they worried that much about it. They're like, we'll put 60 thou on it and we'll just, we'll just grind on it till, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like they, they weren't that worried about it. But, you know, when I'm building stuff, I'm trying to, I'm trying to bind it and then not sand away the binding. You know what I mean? Um, but it took, it took a long time for me to have the confidence to change anything on the F5 other than really the fingerboard. Um, and um, I think I, I think all the things that that I did with the the A's and the two points sort of finally led me to to have the confidence to to change some things, and that's how that's how I think about it now. But still, in terms of sound and feel, you know, the, the you know that, that that's always been you know whenever you think you're doing pretty good, you know, hang out with some people and play a couple of the good old F5s, and you go, yep, okay, yep, I. As good as my stuff is, I would rather play this, you know, and, and, and that, and that has been, um, you know, a real compass for me for a long time, but yeah, yeah. Well, and, and but, the, but those things go hand in hand, the respect for what the, the that lore, um, you know, uh, 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 that pair, what that paradigm is also goes hand in hand for the experimentation on the other side so that you can under more understand what that lore paradigm is. You know what I mean? And, um, Another thing that I've determined that goes hand it goes hand in hand with this thing that Lynn said about what would you change? What what I'll tell you, I mean, I, and people want to talk about well, every lore is different. Well, sure, yeah, they're all different. I've probably played thirty or forty of them. I've been very lucky, okay, and they're all different. But there are some commonalities, <laughs> <laughs> and if you play thirty or forty of them, you get a feel for what those commonalities are. But what the lore sound and vibe is is it, it's never the most of anything it's not the most volume or the most bass or the most you can't get there by trying to make the most you know what i mean it's it's all about this compromise that sits perfectly within the sound of a bluegrass band as as imagined and and evidenced by bill monroe's playing i mean he had the vision for how this instrument worked and, and it was a failure until he picked it up and he showed how it can work and it works, but but it's not the most of anything. It's the best, but you, you can't you can't make better than it because anything you do that's more is different, and then it's therefore not the same. I don't know. <laughs> no, that makes sense. I mean, I've asked that question to a lot of luthiers because it is it, it is remarkable, especially with technology that that everyone has access to now that wasn't around there i mean and it's kind of like fiddles as well i mean people are still trying to figure out what it was that a stradivarius has that somehow can't be duplicated at this point it's very interesting to me as well as like the the initial kind of blueprint is still similar i mean an f5 is still pretty much looks like an f5 and even ones that are radically different usually don't you're, you know, they don't usually make it or haven't made it yet as a, as a big success, you know, and it just, yeah. it's really, I find it really interesting that it's, that it's made it this long, you know, and, and still the way to go it for that, for that model of a mandolin. Yeah. Well, I have, I have two thoughts as somebody who's thought about this a lot that relate to this. And the first thought is there's a piece of information we don't have. And that's what did these sound like when they were new? What did they sound like in 1922, 23, 24? We don't know. There's not good recordings of them. You know, there are some recordings of Dave Apollon. He was kind of playing 
I don't know if the recordings are of actually lore or like post-lore stuff, but there are some recordings, but not in a way that we can compare. So we don't really know. We don't really know what they sounded like when they were new. You know, Monroe gets his in 42, right? Or 43. And as I said, he's the one that had the vision. You know, it's a, it's a commercial failure. They're not being used. He's the one that plays it and has the vision for how it should be used. And so it's 20 years old at that point. Well, and then this is the second piece of the answer. I can tell you, I got a friend in town who has sort of cherry picked some of my better mandolins and he's had them for a long time. Well, I can't get him to buy a new mandolin because nothing I, nothing I make can sound as good new as the ones that he has from 10 years ago. So, so already in 10 years, I can't, of my own stuff, I can't make something that sounds as good. How can you possibly make something that sounds as good as a, a Stradivaria or a Lore that's 100 years old? Um, you know, if you, you know, there's, so there's, this brings up another divergent point here. Are you trying to make a mandolin that sounds like what you think a Lore sounded like when it was new? Or are you trying to make a mandolin that's new that sounds like a lore does now that it's 100 years old? You know, there's – and I think as luthiers, we, we – we, we, you know, different people have different ideas about that. Um, I haven't spoken about this directly with Stephen Gilchrist, but I think, I think Gilchrist is trying to make new ones that sound like the old ones do now. And I'm trying to make – I'm trying to make what I think a new one sounded like when it was new. That's interesting. How much of that, you know, when you make these new, because, you know, mandolins are not inexpensive instruments, um, some more expensive than others, obviously. But like, you know, that that wait period, somebody orders one, they wait, they wait, they wait. And I would imagine they may have an expectation of how it's going to sound right out of the case, which I would think potentially at times isn't exactly what they expected the first time they play it. You know, is that, sure. have you had to deal with that? Okay. Well, so, okay. So here's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So here's a couple of things. One, I haven't built to order in seven or eight years. Oh, wow. Um, and that's one of the reasons um, I decided that most of these people I had been building for, they don't really need to order a mandolin. And I found that the people that, ordered one, they still might a year later play one that I didn't make for them that they liked better Then they'll sell the one they ordered and have that one and they're happier. And so it was, there, that was one of the things that changed. The other thing is I got kind of tired of, I got, I got cranky when people would order. They wanted, well, what do we, will you do a wide nut? No, I won't. Will you do uh, the Evo fretwire? No, I won't. You know, and it just started to be this, this sort of cantankerous dance. And I thought, you know what? These people, I just, I just want to build. So, so, th so that was going on, and then all at the same time, and I had done very well building to order. People were happy; it was not, it was not a problem of, of that. But then my dad got kind of sick, and he'd been working with me, and I knew my output was going to drop. And I thought, well, here I'm going to build eight or ten mandolins a year. Um, I'm going to be able to sell them. I, I just going to build what I think is the best thing that I can build. And so I made that decision a long time back and man, I have never regretted it. So, so yes, it, that can be, you know, and I've ordered um, guitars and stuff. I know what that's like to wait and get it. It's never what you expect because it can't possibly be. 
Um, that doesn't mean good or bad. It might be better than you expected, but it's going to be different because whatever you imagine, that's it's going to be something else. And I just decided, you know, I want people to play one and decide they want that one. You know, I, I, I don't mind, you know, buy it, have them ship it to your house, compare it to your favorite mandolin, decide if you want to keep it or not. I'm totally happy with that equation. So I've changed that idea quite a bit for myself. Now, there's occasionally somebody who wants a left-handed one or, you know, I kind of got uh, prodded into making a bunch of overhauls recently, um, which I enjoyed but was not really the main thrust of what I'm trying to do. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's natural. You can't possibly know what you're going to get when you order one. I think we've been trained that that's what we have to do, but I don't think that's the best way to go. I, I'm reminded of, like, if you – we're going to go buy a violin, and let's say you had ten grand to spend on a violin. You would go to your favorite violin shop, and you'd say, "I want to spend ten grand," and they'd lay out five fiddles that might be from eight grand to twelve grand, and you'd play those fiddles and decide the one you like the best, and that's what you would buy. And um, that's what I want to do. You know, I want I want my man I want my mandolin to hang in the shop next to a Collings and an Ellis. And, uh, and whatever other hand builder might be there. And I want somebody to play those and decide they like mine and buy it. And, and, and um, to do all that stuff, to make all those changes, I really had to, to change it to where I wasn't building to order. And, and so that's, that's what I've done, man. I haven't regretted it a bit. Yeah, I would, I would imagine, I mean, they're like babies. Like I've been, I've been fortunate enough to, to go to Carter when, when Gilchrist was there. Um, you know, fine tuning things and shipping them out to people and, you know, sending them off or making changes and you know, like the anxiety in this brilliant luthier yeah. who's, you know, obviously an incredible builder, his, yeah. just the nerves of, I mean, he stays in the country till he knows every single person satisfied. Yeah. It's a high wire act. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> well, back to the original thing where, where I had said everyone is a miracle. And we take it for granted that that man can produce miracle after miracle, but they are still miracles. I mean, he's, he's, you know, brilliant. And, um, yeah, but, you know, I can tell you that for me personally, I've had a lot less anxiety, not building to order. And I've also been able to explore my own individuality more as a, as a builder. And I, I think that's slowly come out. Um, but, but you have to have that freedom, you know, and, and you also have to pay your dues before, you know, I'm not encouraging people that haven't built to do that necessarily, but, um, you know, I, I had to, there was a lot of things I had to learn by having orders that pushed me out of my comfort zone, you know, and I might've said, oh, I'm not doing that again. Or I might've said, oh, you know, I've learned something there that I can make everything better, you know? Um, but after a certain amount of time, I thought, you know what, I know what, in my mind, what I want a Kimball to be. And I felt strong enough about sound and things like that, that I thought, okay, this, it doesn't need to be to order anymore. It really doesn't. <laughs> you got to take the things into consideration, like yourself, especially, you know, and, and to make that decision and, and take, I would imagine a world of stress off 
of a, yeah. a stressful thing. I can't imagine building something that I would I would be like, man, this might be the best thing I've ever built, no matter what it is. And then sending it to someone who I've never met, maybe, and then having them be like, yeah, I don't like this and being like, Whoa, what? <laughs> or this or I should say this isn't what I expect. Right, right. So so that, so here's the thing as a builder. And it's always it's always hard when you're in those situations, but as a builder, you you have to be open to the fact that somebody either may not like it or it may not be what they expected, and they want to return it. And you have to say, "No problem, thank you very much, glad you tried it out." And if you can't do that within the constraints of the custom order process, then then maybe you really should be doing more what I'm doing. Now, I I didn't have. A, a lot of returns. You know, it was not a problem that I was dealing with that I was trying to get away from. But it was more like I said, if I'm going to make eight or ten, you know, none of these guys. This is not their first mandolin. This is not their only mandolin. You know, they're, they're, there's no. They're not going to miss a gig because they don't get this mandolin for me. They're, they're, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's, it, you know, it's supposed to be fun. It's it, and I thought, you know what, everybody, everybody, slow your roll. I don't have to make everything for everybody. I just want to make what I think is really good and give people a chance to buy it. And like I said, at eight or ten a year, there's enough people that agree with what I like that that I don't take it personally if somebody doesn't, you know. And um, and I think that's important, you know. There's there's people there's people that aren't going to like what I make, and man, that man, that's okay. That's no problem. I I got to hang out at uh, I become buddies with Mike Ugino from the Steve yeah. Canyon Rangers over, over the last few years. He's such a great guy. Super, and Super guy. And, um, you know, before, like the first time they kind of came to Charleston after I'd interviewed him, he's, we did an interview over at his hotel room and, and I was just like, uh, you know, is it, is it weird? You know, cause you have a lore, you know, but you don't really bring it on the steep Canyon Rangers, you know? And he's like, well, have you, have you played my Kimball? I'm like, no. And I'm like, he's like, oh, check this out. And I, I played him like, wow, I'm like, yeah, okay, I could see why it would be easy to switch between the two. I mean, it just sounded amazing. And he knew it did because it, when I looked up, he was, wasn't looking at my hands. He was looking at my face to be like, it's a great sound of mandolin, huh? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think that says a world of, of, of praise, uh, just that look on his face, you know, yeah. to be like, yeah, listen to that. <laughs> that, uh, that whole thing was, was, has been, you know, you, I look in the rear view mirror and I just kind of chuckle because, you know, here he is making this enormous breakthrough playing with Steve Barton and, and, and Steve decides to let him use his lore. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I'm like, this, this is terrible for me. But I mean, he had won, he, he had won Grammys already playing my mandolin on, on those steep Cadian records. You know what I mean? And so, and he called me about it and I was like, man, don't worry about it. I would play a lore if I could play a lore, you know? <laughs> and, and as the years went by, he kind of confided to me, he said, you know, having them both has given me more appreciation for the one that you made. And he said, I still use it. It's got kind of like a thicker kind of a sound and the guys in the band like it. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, 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 and it turns out it, was, it really was no big deal at all to have somebody who, who really does use it and uses the lore at the same, in the same manner. That's like, I mean, that's, that's not a bad place to be. That's like if you were in heavy rotation with David Grisman or something like that, you know, <laughs> right, right. it's one, it'd be one thing. It's one thing for him to have one of your instruments. It's another for him to play it on the regular, like, you know, um, 
you know, that he's going to put pressure down and play your mandolin. You know, but that's, but so that's kind of what it's like with, with, um, with Mike, you know, he has that there and he uses it for certain things. Um, you know, it has a dryness on the, on the records that, that is a little bit like the real deal, you know, but, and he's got, you know, he's got, uh, the other thing that, the, the ironic thing that happened is he's probably, I would guess that he might be the most recorded mandola player uh, because he's used the mandola so much with Steve Martin. So the mandola's got a ton of play. I mean, I've seen him playing on late night TV, playing the mandola and, and stuff like that. And, um, I'm pretty sure he brings it to every Steve Cannon Rangers and he gets at least yeah. one tune a night. Um, yeah. Um, for sure. So. And that's crazy. I mean, there's just not anybody using a mandola that much. And But he told me, I guess, I, I don't, I guess the way, the tunings that Steve uses, it's advantageous to play the mandola sometimes because it puts things in C instead of G and, and he, and it's, it gets him out of the way and lets him do some different textures. And so I know it's been on a ton of the, the recordings they've done with him. Who was it or what was it that when you suddenly were like, wow, I'm, I, you know, you, like you said, yeah, at one point you had like 30 to 40 back orders. Was there a moment that somebody in particular played it? Or, you know, how did the name get out there where it went from you just building some mandolins to like, whoa, I'm building mandolins for a living and I'm busy? Yeah, it was not any one thing. Um, I think some of the big victories, you know, when I first when I first um, got Mike a mandolin was pretty early on. But I remember my buddies were like, well, who are Steve King and Rangers? Like, you'll see, you know, (laughs) you you, you know, so a lot of that happened you know, later. Um, I think it was just, you know, just like anybody starting out, I was starting to get good. There was some good publicity and my prices were low. And so everybody, you know, I was taking deposits and everybody just jumped on. And that was kind of the climate at the time, you know, it's not like that now, but it sort of was then, you know, so people were looking for, you know, you know, and, and, you know, just was, it was not a big problem, but I was made, I made a lot of $4,500, F5s, you know, that were $9,000 F5s, you know, and um, that's okay. You know, I managed it and I, I sort of, I, I cut the list and then I sort of hustled my butt and got through that and, and came out the other side and then things calmed down and, you know, it doesn't feel that way anymore. I mean, obviously, since I'm not taking orders, I wouldn't have that feeling anyway. That oval hole that you built or the oval holes that you built recently, it's been a minute, like, you know, like I'm happy with what I play or whatever, but man, oh man, seeing and hearing those <laughs> definitely put me in a bit of a tailspin of like, oh no. <laughs> yeah, I was excited to do that. You know, um, I I had not been that, all that interested in oval holes until I was around Mike Compton's F4, Gilchrist. And I think like a lot of people, that really changed my idea about what that instrument could do. And um I had a fr- I had a friend here in Cincinnati who had another Gilchrist oval hole F that I was able to borrow and study, and so you know I, I tell people when I'm building the F hole instruments I'm trying I'm going after the the lore era F five sound but when I'm building oval holes I'm copying Gilchrist really um, because that's that you know his vision and his innovation there is what appeals to me and makes it a more useful instrument. Um, but I had made, you know, six or eight of them, maybe 10 or 12 years ago. And I thought, you know, this just financially doesn't make sense. 
because I got to charge as much as what the old ones are. And um, so I kind of let it fall away and, and um, was pretty happily building the F-hole instruments. And then I had this friend, Sean Keegan, came from Ireland oh, yeah. and visited me. So Sean, all he would talk about, overhole, 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 you know? <laughs> and I was like, oh, good grief. I guess I got to make some. And then that year at Monroe Camp, um, Jim Richter had his F4 that I had made. And then Mike was there with with his F4. And, and <clears throat> um, Carl Jones was there playing an overhole. And it just <sighs> – I was just like, wow, man, I, re- I was really inspired by the sound of it again. And I thought, okay, I need to get back into this. And so I built built this round. I think I built six of them. And, um, and y- you know, the construction technique is quite a bit different when you're doing a non-elevated fingerboard like that. And, uh, you know, the neck angle is different and the way you carve the top is different. And it, it kind of took me a minute to get to get happy with what was going on. And uh, But, man, those all turned out really good. And and now I don't have to make them again for another 15 years. <laughs> there's my there's my six for the millennia. <laughs> yeah. Well, man, they uh, not only like did they blow my mind, but there's there's definitely uh, people. I, there was a I remember somebody posted on the Mandolin Cafe a while back, not that long ago. Like, okay, who did anybody buy that Kimball? Like, they were like so they were like, you know, just like it sounded so good, and you know, and somebody did. It's not, it wasn't. I followed the link, and <laughs> I think yeah. actually the link was who bought that crazy good Kimball. <laughs> it was, was something yeah. like that. So that's amazing. Well, the well the the quick answer about what what's special about what Gilchrist has done here is that he has um, used hard maple for the back of the neck, and that has that tightens up the sound a little bit and it adds clarity and focus. So and it and it gives a little bit more of a a high end more like an F5 where it's a little rounder instead of that boomy low end. It's more of a so it, beca- it starts to become – it's got that traditional sound, but it's got a little bit more of a useful, controlled voice. And so that's the game. That's the game with the oval holes. Um, what, what got you into the uh, two points? You build those amazing-sounded two points. Dylan McCarthy is the person that I think of in particular. Oh, that. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. And that thing sounded great stat. Like, I mean, he posted a video not long after getting it, and I'm like, whoa, that mandolin sounds like it's, you know, yeah. it's already broken in. I don't know Dylan really well, but I, I get I get his videos and stuff. And after he'd had that, I guess six months or so, I sent him a note and I was like, "Dude, I'm so glad you have that because you have <laughs> like you've made it your own. It's a wild looking mandolin, but like it sounds terrific. You sound terrific on it. Um, I you know I don't know. I guess I was interested to do a two point, and I didn't care for anything that I had seen, and. You know, we were looking at things and, um, you know, I have since seen the Monteleone Baby Grand. I had never seen one of those. The Monteleone Baby Grand is, is kind of in, similar. Um, but that downward point like that, that comes from the three-point early F4. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if you go look at those, it's got that – it's got the extra point in the bout. On the on the base side, but if you look at the tr- the treble side, it's got that downward sloping point, and so that was actually the inspiration was to take that and flip it on both sides. and And my dad had really great eye for design, and you know he and I, you know, paper is easy and cheap to build mandolins with, and so we would <laughs> just draw things. And um, you know that was one that we liked, and we built one, and everybody liked it. And I just I just kind of kept it going, and then. Um, I used to use it more 
as, okay, well, I can do different things with this. But now I've kind of changed my mind. Now what's fun to me is to take the, that two-point design and then make it look like a lore more in terms of appointments and color. And um, I, I like that blend of like, you know, showing that you respect the tradition of the old ones, but but having your and with you know you're trying to show you have mastery over these old ideas, but with new new designs, you know. I just love I love too because you know I mean mandolins and and it wears like such a fickle thing as far as design. Like there's so many people who are like. I mean, anti-A style sometimes or, you know, it's just like, sure. oh, I have to have an F5. I mean, that's what it's got to be. And I just sure. love that you make these decisions to to kind of go outside the box a little bit of like what people might think of as a great sounding mandolin. I remember seeing Danny Roberts at IBMA one year and he said, hey, Will, you still making them tater bugs? <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> and I kind of chuckled. And I just thought, you know, I make Fs too, and these aren't even tater bugs. And they would, but it just kind of shows you how that, 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 like, I mean, it was just him. And he, you know, he was, he was glad to see me. And I like Davey Roberts. Um, but it was just was like that old boy mentality, man. You're either making Fs or you're not, you know, and you, you, you have to make, it's, it's, I hate to say it, you have to make a certain amount of Fs at a certain quality to sort of like hold yourself in your spot. <laughs> now, I mean, I've graduated from that a little bit, I think. And I, like I said, I finally started to be more creative. And, and I think the market has finally got to that place. Okay, we've seen so many good F5 copies that, yeah, maybe I, maybe I can consider one where the headstock is different or the fingerboard is different. Or, and so I think, I think we're moving in a good direction um, in, in, in that regard. Um, you know, but when man, when I started, man, it was like, hey, you want fur, you want a flower pot, man. It was like that. You know? <laughs> yeah. And um, and there was no point to even talk about anything else because I knew that's what somebody was going to want. But I, you know, another piece of me not building to order is I kind of got this concept of like a self fulfilling prophecy, and I realized if I wanted to, to build some things that were different, I needed to to to. I needed to go ahead and build those things so that that's what people expected from me. And so by opening up that little bit of freedom to step into, now I think people expect that from me. And almost to the point where, you know, I, I think I, I, I think I could be real comfortable and say I'm not going to make any Fs with that traditional headstock anymore. I probably, I probably just won't because cause I think at this point I think people are open to it and I think people, you know, they they almost expect it to be – be me, or at least I'm willing to take that territory as mine at this point. And, um, but man, yeah, that's not where the way things were when I started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I believe it. Oh man, that's so funny. Is there a point when you're building these? Like, is there a, a, a point where you put in significant time and get to a point of no return on something where you're like, this is no matter how much you've built one, like this one is just not going to sound my, you know, is there a point to the, at there for you or is it, you, you kind of know what the wood and at this point you're building, you're like, you feel everyone's going to be pretty successful. Um, you know, every, at this point, everyone is pretty successful. Um, there are occasionally be something crazy happen where you're like, Oh, I don't know if I can fix this in a way which I'll be happy with it. But you know, usually, usually you do, you know, 
but they're, you know, none of them are perfect. You know, they're all their own little miracle and they all have their own setbacks and, and, um, but, but mine have sounded pretty good and pretty consistent and pretty good out of the box for a really long time. So I don't know, there's must be something about the way I carve the tops or the way I do the tone bars or whatever it is, or something that makes them jump from the beginning. So, you know, volume and tone are usually pretty good. And then it, then it actually starts to become more like, well, if this person may not like this, but somebody else might prefer that. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, if it, something was really bad or really a problem, or I thought it was going to fail. I just cut it up. So I, I'm not afraid to do that. You know? <laughs> yeah, I bet. Well, you're, you're an artist. I mean, you wouldn't be an artist if there weren't things you're striving for doing better every time, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't, you know, I, 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 I fight against this a little bit. I, I don't think we're artists. The, the musicians are the artists and the music is the art, you know, and we're craftsmen. We're craftsmen making tools for artists. So <laughs> well, I think of you guys as artists. In my mind, I think it's a beautiful. What you do is beautiful. As long as, long as you know, I may not always feel that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, have you ever, since you make them to order now, have you ever built one where you're like, I have to keep this one? Well, you know, I, you know, my friends who know me close would laugh, and because they've probably heard me say that a few times, and. I don't keep anything. It just doesn't work out that way. You know, the more, the more I want to keep one, the less chance I've got of keeping it. <laughs> and so that, you know, that red, that red F2 that I finished recently, that was one I was going to keep and, and it's, it's gone. And, um, you know, it's, it's the business plan is you make them and you sell them, you know, it's not, I'm not a collector. And, uh, but you know, I have, I have one guitar right now and no mandolins. So that's where that's where I'm at. That was my next question is what mandolins you own. That's yeah, interesting. That's, that's where I'm at today. Well, I'm you know, I'm hoping I would like to, I want one of these red spruce two points that's one I'm I want one to call out to me that I'll have a chance to be able to hold on to it. Because that's kinda like the do everything reasonable investment uh and shows the most of my you know, ideas and so that's kinda I, but you know that's always just looking forward. You know they're all they're all for me. I just I just don't ever get to keep them. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way to look at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, of all those lures that you played, has, has there been one in particular? I mean, that just stood out as like holy cow. You know, I, I was at a party where there was a lot of instruments. There was there was a party. I think there was something like between 20 and 30 lures and ferns at this party. And um, it was a good time to get a feel for the breadth of the whole deal, right? But there were two sidebound July 9ths there, and they both flipped me out. Wow. To just, just, they were like, okay, this is it, you know? Now, I don't know. It's been a long time since that party. But, um, and I've played some other good ones. But, man, I, I think those two... Those two sidebound July 9ths were, were the best that I've played. What was it about those? You know, I think, um, you know, sometimes you just pick it, pick up an instrument and it's just transparent and all you're doing is thinking about playing music. You're not thinking about the instrument anymore. And these were just immediately drew you into that. You know, you weren't like, wow, this is set up weird or I wish it didn't have the small wire or, you know, whatever. Whatever the things that can distract you on a lore, it didn't have any of that. It, they were set up perfectly. They sounded terrific. The balance was there. Like 
they had the power up high, but they had the warmth down low. And, and, you know, it's all just, you know, if it's transparent and lets you make music on it, you know, um, that's, that's a lot. And when, and when there's a whole bunch of them there and there's two that stand out to you, then you're like, okay, (laughs) you know, do you have a song that you, that you play on them when they're finished in particular? <laughs> you know, there's a handful, like, like I always like to play, um, oh, uh, East Tennessee blues. I think, I don't know why. And, um, there's a dog and dog. I like to play on all of them. Uh, you know, the, uh, there's a couple that I, that, that, that are sort of my, you know, you got to tremolo a little bit, right. So you got to play, you know, um, you know, something with some tremolo and get a feel for that. Um, I usually play that Jay Unger. What's the um? Oh, Ashokan. Yeah, Ashokan. Yeah, you got to play some Ashokan farewell. Yeah, that's great. Is there? Um, I know you know. There's certain woods now that are that are rare and tough to get. Is there any any like? piece of wood out there that you would love to get your hands on or are you pretty, pretty content? No, no, I don't get, I don't get real intense about wood. Uh, I know some people do and that's cool. And you know, some people like to have, they like to collect wood almost and have years and years of wood. I don't have a ton of wood built up. Um, I've been buying wood from old standard wood in Missouri for a long time and they're just terrific. They're just so good. And I, it's so consistent and I, it's, I'm so confident with how things will sound when I use their wood. So I don't really get that excited about wood. The, um, the, it see, although it seems to be a little harder to get sugar maple, uh, you know, in the, in the, I, I can't get it. That looks like that crazy D log stuff that Gilchrist has. I mean, that doesn't seem to be available. So <laughs> you know, it'd, be, it'd be nice to have something like that, but I don't, I, I don't have any of it. Um, but, you know, I don't get hung up on the wood. I'm like, you know, you got to build mantles with something and, and this is perfectly good wood and I'm going to build with it. And and so, you, just, you know, the one that, that's going to get us with mandolins is the ebony. You know, that's the that's the one that's the one that will become restricted or that we'll have to get used to using some wood with color in it rather than, you know, black, black ebony. And But I'm already comfortable with that. So, Oh, that's good. I mean, a lot of times I'll try to take a, a colorful – fingerboard and a colorful piece of ebony and match them for the pick guard and just go ahead and like you know like brag on it instead of like hide from it you know what i mean mm-hmm. and that's that's so dylan mccarthy's mandolin is a good example his headstock is crazy it's just like a half bleached out piece of ebony um but i went with it you know i thought it looked cool have you ever experimented with any particular woods that aren't usual? I, I remember, and I asked that because I remember a while, man, in the 90s, and I had a buddy who worked at a music store, and they were big Taylor guitar deals dealers. And yeah. at one point, um, Taylor had built, I think they called it the wood crate guitar, and it was yeah. it basically yeah. just like a crate. And he just was like, I bet you can yeah. make a guitar out of that. Is there anything that you uh, have ever tried? Yeah, I mean, I tried a lot of stuff. Like I told you, there was that window when I did a ton of experimentation. So I know I, I built one with a walnut back. Oh, wow. I built I built a mandola with a redwood top. Um, uh, what are some other things? Um, you know, I've used German. I've used Italian. I've used, you know, that's all European. But I've used these different woods to all to varying degrees of success. But, man, it's really all about red spruce and sugar maple at this point. 
Um, so I did it's back to what I was telling you about, you know, you can eliminate everything to the left and you can eliminate everything to the right. And that leaves you with red spruce and sugar maple. <laughs> <laughs> now I have been, I used to build a lot with Engelman and, and the Engelman I like to put with red maple. And, um, these two that I'm French polishing today are actually Engelman and red maple. Um, but generally with the red spruce, I prefer the sugar maple. I just feel like it needs that to have the top of the treble end be clean and clear, um, which is an interesting point. To me, that wood choice has more to do – of the back has more to do with the high end than the low end. Yeah, yeah. If you don't have the sugar maple, you're not going to have that really clear high end. You know, the softer the back, the more rounded and sort of dark the, the high end on the E string is going to be. Dude, this, is, this has been so great talking with you. I, I, I love – you can hear the passion in your voice of, of what you do, which I think probably uh, also helps you be successful. It's really just really great to talk to you because, you know, you be putting out some beautiful instruments, man. And Well, thanks. Well, you said it's a pretty, it's a pretty solitary – job you know and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and i know one of the things paul and i get together at monroe camp we we just that's one of the things we like is to be be with somebody else who does what we do in solitary you know <laughs> the rest of the year and so you know sometimes if you get me out of my little cage i'll talk a lot you know <laughs> are you gonna be at, are you gonna be at monroe camp this year yes uh you know that's something that's something that i've i do uh, pretty much every year as long as they'll have me but they always want me um but yeah, Paul and I love that. That's something. That's a place, and that's a that's a camp I'm really passionate about because, as I said before, I think that Bill Monroe was the person who recognized the potential in this instrument and 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 showed it to us all. You know, no matter where you've taken it from, there he's the one. You know, it was unsuccessful. He's the one that recognized it, and so. And, and, and I like traditional music, and I, and I love Mike Compton, and, and I really like that they're taking people and making sure that they have a handle on that part of the music and keeping that part going, that foundation. And so I'm, I, it's something I feel real strongly about, and I really enjoy. That's great. They there. invited me this year to do some podcast stuff, so I'll, I'll, I will be there for a few days. Yeah, I'm hoping – I don't know if I'll be able to pull this off, but I'm hoping that uh, my friend Tom Quinn is going to bring a bunch of Monroe 78s. Oh, and I'm wow. going to I'm going to bring this period 78 player and we're going to hopefully be able to listen to some 78s like they would have sounded in 1948, you know, oh, or Oh man. So hopefully that hopefully that will hopefully that will come together. That'd be great. That'd be great. It'd be good to meet you. I don't think I met you in person. No, so we haven't yet. I, I would love to do that. Well, I can't wait. Yeah, we'll definitely make that happen. And um, and I do have two more questions left. And, and, and the first one I ask a lot of times is, is usually for, for playing purposes. But, uh, you know, for maybe any potential luthiers out there, is there just like one tip that you would say that maybe they might not think of, especially if they're new at it or maybe they're only a few in? Is there like some advice you had gotten or a piece of advice you would give to potential builders out there that might maybe save them some time and heartbreak? Uh, well, I'll go back to that thing we said earlier from Lynn about what is it about a lower mandolin that you don't like or feel the need to change. You know, I think that that should inspire any builder to become familiar with what they really feel and sound like. And, um, and hand in hand with that, you need to be able to play well enough to recognize what that is. Oh, nice. Great advice. Yep. And then the, the, the last question is, do you have a favorite beer? Oh, yeah, man. Um, Sierra Nevada, hazy little IPA. Oh, so good. 
oh, then the green cans, man, that's, that's been it since I've, since I first had one of those, I was like, that's it. Oh man. Well, uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let's cheers a beer when we meet up at Monroe camp. Uh, some, I'll be sure to bring a hazy, he's a little IPA. I'll be driving up there. Yeah, so I'll bring, bring some, some of that. And we usually have a pretty good bourbon thing going on the last oh. few years. Oh, oh dude, I'm so excited now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Will, I know you are super busy and it really means a lot to me that you took the time out of your day to do this podcast. So I really, truly appreciate it. And uh, congrats on just the continued success. Thanks. And thank you for your interest in what I'm doing. Absolutely, man. There you go. Thank you so much to Will for doing the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope everybody has a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. And uh, maybe I'll see you in St. Augustine if you're there. All right. Cheers, everybody.